Well, as I just said, we're, we're back in our series through the book of Jonah this morning. And uh, my first sermon in this series back in February, I said that the book of Jonah touches on several different themes and contains a lot of different lessons for the follower of Jesus. And that while the overarching message of Jonah is God's abundant mercy, it touches on themes of things like race. It touches on things like hyper-nationalism, this, this over-calculation of the belief that, that your nation is superior over other nations. It touches on missions. It touches on the struggle to trust God's character. It, it talks about the, the challenges that we sometimes face as our view of what God is like can be skewed by our own sinfulness. And so there is a lot to take from this book. And as we turn to the second half of this book this morning, um, I believe that chapter three and four have a lot to offer us as we look at Jonah's attitude toward and interactions with the pagan world that was all around him as he completes this mission that God gave him to complete. And then after he completes this mission, has this incredibly negative reaction to how God uses the prophetic message that Jonah delivers to Nineveh. You know, my old pastor, I remember him once saying uh, when he was speaking about leadership, he said that sometimes God will place you under a terrible leader or a terrible manager. And some of you are like, yep, I know that. (laughs) But he'll place you under terrible leaders and terrible managers because you can learn a lot from terrible leaders. As you patiently endure their leadership, showing them honor publicly, as God's word calls us to, you will learn what you do not want to be when you become a leader yourself. And that can be as important as learning what you do want to be when you become a leader yourself. And I think the, the same principle applies here when reading the book of Jonah. Jonah is an example of what followers of Jesus should not want to emulate. And we can learn much from Jonah's mistakes. As I've said previously, one commentator on the book of Jonah, he's quipped that the message of the book could simply be summed up as don't be like Jonah. (laughs) And in that vein, I think this book has a lot to teach Christians about how not to view and approach the unbelieving world that's all around us. You know, I said before that even though Jonah is is not an example that we want to emulate, we need to be slow to judge him too harshly. Because instead of casting judgment on Jonah, what we see from him should cause us to examine and discern the state of our own hearts and our own attitude toward a world that is fallen and is broken and is largely in opposition to Christian beliefs. What we see in Jonah is an important reminder that if you are a follower of Jesus, we need to be acutely aware of what is going on in our hearts. Because, of course, we know that Jesus taught that it's from the hearts, from the inner being of a person where everything flows from, whether it's good or whether it's evil. And one of the sinful results of Jonah's view of the world And one of the sinful things that can happen in our own hearts is that our view of the world around us 
can breed the wrong things in our heart toward those who do not know Christ. And as a result, will be different than us in thought, in deed, and at times opposed to our message and our way of life. Our faith, when rightly lived out, will bring opposition. This is what Jesus has said to us. Matthew 10, 24 to 25, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. We will meet opposition as followers of Jesus. And the opposition that we face can be either direct or indirect. And what I mean by that is we can experience direct attacks on our beliefs by people. Or, and more likely in our day-to-day lives, we can experience this indirect pressure that is placed on us and our beliefs due to such things as differing view that someone holds, or a way of life that someone lives, or a policy that our government puts in place, and so on. And these things are a part of living in a secularized culture and they can result in this indirect opposition that feels uncomfortable for us and strains our convictions. And let's be honest, we don't like it. We don't like it. We don't like to feel uncomfortable. We don't like to feel pressed. This is similar to what it was like for Jonah. For Jonah, there was no direct opposition at, his time, at this time. They, they, their enemy, Assyria, there was no direct opposition from them happening at this point in Jonah's life. But there was a perceived threat from the Assyrians that pressed on Jonah, that pressed on his nation, that pressed on his way of life and his convictions. And that affected his heart toward them. You know, just a a side note to this. uh, This week, Anthony Bradley, he's a professor at King's College. He tweeted, I know I'm on Twitter. He tweeted, discomfort is not oppression. And I thought, that's really good. Discomfort is not oppression. And I think Christians in our culture, we need to learn that. That just because we're uncomfortable, it doesn't mean that we're being oppressed. There is a difference between discomfort that comes because we live in a world that is not our home and genuine oppression. And when discomfort and oppression happens, we need to be acutely aware of our heart's response to it because opposition can easily breed contempt in our hearts toward the source or the influence of that opposition, which of course is another human being or a group of human beings. But most importantly, a fellow image bearer of God. That's what we must always keep in our hearts and our minds. They're a fellow image bearer of God. And this is the problem that we see with Jonah. His heart was hard toward the Assyrians. He hated them. They had different beliefs than him. They had different social norms than him. They had different gods than him. 
Not to mention they had some atrocious and evil practices. And all of that pressed upon Jonah's beliefs and his convictions. And it bred contempt for them in his heart. In his view, the people of Nineveh were pagans who deserved God's wrath and should rightly receive God's wrath. Now, if you're paying attention, you're going, well, that sounds right. Because the interesting thing about that is that is right. They are, they do deserve God's wrath, rightfully. They absolutely do. But the deficiency of Jonah's view was that he forgot his own fate would be no different than the Assyrians apart from the mercy of God that was upon his life as one of Yahweh's chosen people. Jonah's heart had lost grasp of the truth that he deserved God's wrath as much as any Assyrian did. Yet he had been shown mercy from the Lord. And the result of his failure to hold God's mercies before him was this hardness of heart toward those who were not a part of the people of God. Like, I'm sure that Jonah didn't realize how hard his, how hard his heart was. But I was thinking about it this week, and I was thinking, I just wonder, like, when he finally obeyed God, when he finally went to Nineveh and he preached and he cried out against that city, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown, did he like it? Seriously, did, did he like preaching that message? Did he like the prospect of God's judgment over the people of Nineveh? Did it bring him joy? And I honestly think that we just have to flip to chapter 4 and we'll see. I think it did. I don't think you can come to another conclusion when you see Jonah's horrible response to God's mercy. He says in Jonah 4, it says in Jonah 4 verse 1 to 3, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah's heart is so hard that he takes the characteristics of God that God shows his people in Exodus that are good and beautiful, and he turns them upside down. I knew you were gracious. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's why I didn't want to go. He makes them negative things because his heart was so hard. Jonah had such contempt in his heart for the Assyrians that he despised the mercy of God so much over his enemies that he would rather die than see it happen. We can give over to the same kind of heart. In fact, I've seen it happening more and more amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. As our culture has shifted from this relative cultural Christian ethic and given itself over to worldliness at an increasingly fast pace. And let's be honest, it's been magnified during COVID. And the role of our government that is increasingly hostile to Christian ethics. And I find that the result of this, 
this so-called losing the culture, is that more and more Christians are angry and they're judgmental. And they have this us versus them mindset that's growing in Jesus' church and it's growing in individual hearts and it is wrong and it is not Christ-like. And if it describes you this morning, then you need to repent. We will never reach a culture full of lost souls if all we have is angst and contempt towards it. And I fear there is too many followers of Jesus who are content to watch our world sink as they look on from a distance in the lifeboat that Jesus has given them, thinking exactly like Jonah, serves you right. You deserve it. Our hearts are deceptive and they can become ferociously hard if we're not aware. Just think about Jonah's response in chapter four. I would rather die than watch you show mercy. This happened shortly after the reality of God's abundant mercy literally swallowed Jonah up. Like, have you thought about that? Like, Jonah was rebellious. He was disobedient to his call. He was running from God. He tried to escape his presence. He almost took down an entire boat of fishermen with him in his rebellion. He faced imminent death for his crimes against God, which he deserved as he was thrown into the sea. Yet in God's mercy, he saved Jonah with a big fish. Jonah experiences the the kind of tangible mercy like that and then goes to Nineveh and hopes that that mercy will be withheld from the people. That's a hard heart. How about all of us? How about all of us towards the culture around us? All of us who are followers of Jesus have had a big fish moment like Jonah. Maybe several. Where God has showed his utter, unthinkable mercy over us. I mean, whether you think about your conversion to Christ, that's utter mercy. How God brought you from death to life, that's mercy. A moment or a season where God pulled you out of something that you got yourself into, that's mercy. The experience of a season of joy, where you just have this abounding joy, that's God's mercy. All good things come from Him. We must remember the mercies of God. We must Hold them before our eyes. We must know the grace over our own lives and understand all we are, all we have is because of Him so that we don't become like Jonah toward our culture. Because we are forgetful. You cannot read of Jesus on the cross. 
You can't read of him on the cross saying to his father, forgive them for they know not what they do after they beat him and mocked him and drove nails through his hands and feet. You cannot read Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You cannot read Matthew 9, 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You cannot personally experience the mercies of God in your own life as you have gone from death to life, child of wrath to child of God. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are wicked. Some of us were sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, greedy, drunkards, verbally abusive, swindlers. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the Spirit of God. You cannot read and know and experience these things through the power of the Holy Spirit and be indignant toward a culture and a people that are drowning in worldliness because they don't know Jesus Christ. Because that is every single one of us apart from the mercies of God. Don't be like Jonah. Jonah, along with the Israelites in general, they hated these Syrian people. And there's a principle in their hatred that we can take from their culture and drop it into ours in an even more extreme way because of social media. I've talked about this principle before. And it's that it's really, really easy to hate and be indifferent to culture on a macro level. What I mean by that is Jonah hated the Assyrians as a people, as a group, as a culture On a macro level, it is really easy to hate something on a group level. Whether it be a particular political group, whether it be the pro-choice movement, whether it be the sexual revolution. All of these groups and movements that press against our faith. And when you only consider it from a macro level, it's really easy to hate the people that make up those groups. And this is just made worse by social media where everybody is just clumped together. It is only when you get down to the micro level and see those groups are made up of individuals, of people, of image bearers of God who do not know Jesus Christ that it becomes much harder to hate them. It's when you get into the muck. It's when you get into the mire and see the brokenness in individual hearts that you will have the capacity to mimic Jesus Christ. He knows what is in men and he had compassion on them because he knows each one. In Jonah's case, like I'm sure it was really easy to hate these Syrians as a people and hope they perished. But I picture as Jonah's walking, as it says in verse 3 and 4, he goes to Nineveh, the exceedingly great city, walking through it a day's journey. I mean, if he looked around him as he walked and he considered the individual men and the individual women and the children that made up the group that he hated, if he could see them individually and know them, How could he long for them to perish? How could he be indifferent? 
When we consider each individual life in light of the gospel, there's no other response that is appropriate than to mimic Jesus Christ. Matthew 9.36, when he saw them, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That is how we must always view our culture. That is how we must always view the people in our culture. Our culture is a flock made up of individual sheep who are without a shepherd. They are harassed. They are helpless. They are trying to find their way. They are dead in their trespasses. We can hate what certain political groups stand for and push. Hear me. We can hate what certain political groups stand for and push. We can hate what the pro-choice movement stands for. We can hate what the sexual revolution is doing to image bearers of God and children and young people especially. We can hate what is evil because God hates what is evil. But we cannot hate the men and the women behind them. They are souls that are precious to God. And if the scripture really is true, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, then we must guard our hearts and not allow them to breed contempt so that we may reach this culture. So having said that, I want to just look at a couple of verses from chapter 3 more closely. And I want to take just some key things from it. Jonah 3, verse 1 to 2. He says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, the message that I tell you. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And the verses here are almost identical to the first time the Lord called Jonah at the beginning of chapter 1. What we should see in God's word coming to Jonah again is God's patience. And again, his mercy over Jonah. And on a grander scale, sinners in general, like you and like me, when we are rebellious. God giving Jonah a second chance reminded me of a similar situation that happens in the Gospels. When Jesus reinstates Peter, we all know this story well. Peter had denied Jesus three times the night that he was betrayed. This was the low point of Peter's life. He had hit rock bottom. I'm sure he thought he had completely botched it all up. He was done. But then John 21, Jesus sits with Peter after they have breakfast in the morning and asks Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Essentially what Jesus was doing there was canceling out Peter's three denials with three affirmations. And he reinstates Peter and he gives him a mission for his life. Feed and tend to my sheep. 
God's mercy is extended to Peter in his worst moment. God's mercy is extended to Jonah when he is immensely rebellious. God's mercy extends to his people, to you and to I every day in so many situations. And as we have received and continue to receive his mercy freely, we give to others at least the opportunity to receive it. And this requires obedience to God's call to his people, like Jonah was obedient the second time. Verse three, it says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. This is the obedience that we must walk in. We need to arise and go according to the word of the Lord because we have a commissioning like Jonah. You know where I'm going, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, there's, there's a reason why it's called the Great Commission. First of all, because it's a great honor. The problem is so many Christians don't see it that way. See it as a great nuisance. It is a great honor. It is a great undertaking to be used by the Lord Jesus to bring another person to Christ. It has to be a priority in our lives. This should be right up there in the priority of our lives. And I think it's safe to say that it is not for a lot of Christians. And I'm sorry to say that it's not been where I think it should be in my life. It's easy sometimes as a pastor to minister inside walls and be focused on that. But I need to be focused outside of here as well on people that don't know Jesus. So I want to say two things on this. First thing is, if, if you just don't know how to connect the dots between how you live your life and the Great Commission, that's a struggle sometimes. Like, how do I fit this into everything? How do I fit into my work? How do I fit into here? How do I make it a priority? If you just don't know how to connect the dots, how to live according to this, then seek help on how to intertwine it all. I pray that the Lord would give you a burden to make it a priority, that you would seek me and we can talk about how do you, how do you make this a priority? How do you fit it into your life? Or, or seek a mentor or a trusted friend that you can talk through with how to make this a priority. The Great Commission is central to your life and purpose as a follower of Jesus. The second thing I would say on it that I think trips up a lot of Christians is believe that God will be faithful to you when you take steps of obedience to live according to his word. When the word of the Lord came to Jonah the first time, he fled. He's like, no way, I'm not going. There's no way this is going to be successful. He thought the mission was bad. The success was unlikely. He probably was going to die. But Jonah learned he cannot escape God's call or command. He learned that very clearly. That was made pretty evident in the events of chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? Jonah 
must do what he was given to do. But even as he went to Nineveh, I don't think he had much faith that what he was going to do was going to have any success. Yet Jonah goes and declares, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And what is the response of the people? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Jonah's message was a success. It touched the whole city from the greatest to the least, including the king. Verse 6 to 8, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is a stunning response from the Ninevite people. The Hebrew word for repent is shub. It means to turn. and It's used four times in these two verses. The repentance is, is so complete that a nation that is known for barbaric, violent acts, the king actually accuses itself of violence. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and the violence that is in his hands. Now, I will not go as far as to say the Ninevites came to saving faith in God and, and turn from idols because there's just nothing to back that, text, that up in the text. But, but the call to repentance was focused on their deeds and they relented from their deeds. They turned from the evil ways and the, the violence that they were doing. And so God relented from destroying the city. He showed mercy upon the people of Nineveh. And here's the thing. What Jonah didn't know, and what we could not have known from reading the text, is that God had been doing work behind the scenes to prepare the hearts of the people before he sent Jonah. Historical accounts actually show that around the time that Jonah was sent to Nineveh, the Assyrians had experienced a series of famines, Plagues, uprisings, and eclipses. Now, if you are a pagan at that time, all of those are very bad omens. And so you're experiencing those things, and a man comes into the city and says, Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. You're accepting that message. God was doing something behind the scenes. And I think so often in our lives, we do not think about that. We do not know what God is doing behind the scenes to prepare hearts as we live according to the word of God. I remember I went downtown one time with a couple of friends just to like preach and to do whatever we could do down there. And I was just walking down the street and there was this guy that walked the other way. And, and I kept going and God was like, go talk to him. And I was like, no. And, and then kept, kept walking for a little bit. And then I was like, oh, shoot, okay. And, and then went back and started talking and just approached the guy and said, hey, we're just walking around downtown, just wondering if we can pray for you, you know, whatever, whatever you may need. He was like, oh, you got the wrong guy. You don't want to talk to me. And I was like, oh, why not? And he pulled his shirt aside and he had an up tied down cross. 
So I was like, ooh, (laughs) you're angry, (laughs) right? Like you had a bad experience with the church. But it was interesting because I started talking to him and he so quickly softened. And after about like, I don't know, seven or eight minutes of talking to him, he ended up letting me pray for him. And I was just like, okay. Like, what was God doing behind the scenes that he would talk to me as I'm walking by this guy who has an upside-down cross? Like, in the natural, you're thinking, well, you want nothing to do with Jesus. And by the end, he let me pray for him. We just don't know. And we so often make assumptions as followers of Jesus that our message will just be not accepted. And so we don't step out, but, but God has told us to. It's in his word, and he'll be faithful when we do it. Last thing I would say is we need to preach a message like Jonah preached. Jonah preached God's wrath and God's judgment. And that is totally contrary to the modern idea of just preaching love. But God's love will not be rightly understood if there is no understanding of God's wrath, no understanding of God's judgment, no understanding of eternal consequences. Why do I care if nothing's going to happen to me, if God just loves me? People need to know. They're rebellious. They're enemies of God. God is just. He will rightly deal with them. We cannot shy away from preaching wrath and judgment. It is not the full story to just say, God loves you. Then we're just happily sending them to hell, thinking, oh, God loves me. I must be okay. But we won't preach a hard message like that unless we actually love people. A sinner must know they're a sinner and they're in trouble before they will care to seek the Lord. The difference between us and Jonah is Jonah preached God's wrath with joy. (laughs) God's wrath is coming. We preach it with sorrow. We preach it with compassion. But you have to love a person enough to tell them the truth about these things. Let's not be like Jonah to our culture. If, if you're here and you just feel a hardness towards people who don't know Christ, you tend to clump people in groups and like, oh, I hate them. I pray that you would repent this morning. That you would bring that to the Lord and say, Lord, that is not of you. That is not of Christ. That's my own sinfulness getting the best of me. That's my flesh. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father.